So we end today where we began a few weeks ago in the midst of this series called Tell a Good Story. And as we think about ending this series, we're going to look today at a story that is well known, but I think has some new words for us. And at the beginning, we talked about that there was this company that had made all of this money and all of these movies and all of these awards, and they had a very simple concept of a story. And the company's name is Pixar, and since we even talked about that, they've had another movie make almost $200 million. And their philosophy at Pixar is that every great story has the same formula. It's this, that once upon a time there was, every day they... But one day, and everything changed. That every great story has this kind of formula that people were living, someone was living, animals were living, something was living. And everything was going normally until something changed. And then everything was different. And while I appreciate the good people of Pixar, and I understand the formulaic sense of those words, the truth is that... We have watched lots of movies, lots of television, read lots of books, where as you're going through the book, you could almost plug in what's going to happen. Anybody ever watched a movie and said, oh, I knew that was going to happen, right? Or I knew that's how it was going to end, right? Some of you have done that because you went and watched the end of the movie before you got into the middle of the movie, and then you told your spouse, I knew that's how it was going to happen right there, right? But my favorite stories have something additional in there. Just a little something extra. And that is a twist that you never saw coming. I don't like predictable. I don't like knowing the end when I'm watching the beginning of how it's going to happen. I like a twist. And some of the greatest movies, some of the greatest television, some of the greatest novels of all time have that twist. Like when you find out that Rosebud is a childhood sled. Or that Norman actually killed his mom years ago and has been living with a split personality. Or Dr. Crow is actually dead. Or Jack tells Kate that they have to go back. That Alfred Borden is a set of twins. That Percival Greaves is actually Gellert Grindenwald. That Kate, Kevin, and Randall are Jack and Rebecca's big three. That Roger Kent is Kaiser Sose. Or you hear those words, no Luke. I am your father. Right? Now if you didn't understand some of those or all of those, that's okay. I didn't spoil a movie for you, alright? If you did and you hadn't watched the movie, I'm sorry. But they've all been out for at least a, a year so. But perhaps the greatest twist of all time was, in that video it says it, he is not here. He is risen. I love a story with a twist. you got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. We're going to look today at a story that for the original audience would have had multiple plot twists. A very surprising ending. Something that was completely unexpected. For those participating in it, in fact, we see some of their astonishment at what is happening. And we're going to read today the book, or in the book of John, chapter 4. Now, here's what I want to tell you. 
I need you to open up a Bible if you've got it or on a phone or share with somebody next to you. The the words aren't going to be on the screen because I want you to hear it as a story. I want you to experience it as a story. And I want to give you really two twists that come for us in the midst of this message, in the midst of this story. And we're just going to read the first part and then talk about it for a minute. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. And a woman came to draw water. Samaritan woman. Give me a drink, she said, or Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where did you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us a well and drank from him himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus says, whoever drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Well, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. And he says, you're correct. You said it correctly when you said, I don't have a husband, for you've had five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped you on this mountain, but you say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, and neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I The one speaking to you am he. Now, there are several plot twists we've already seen in this passage. I don't know if you caught them or not. The first one was that he said he had to go through Samaria. The reality is, in that day and time, Jews avoided Samaria as much as possible. The original audience would have been like, why did he have to do that? The second plot twist comes immediately upon him asking the Samaritan woman to give him a water because Jews didn't talk to Samaritans and Jews didn't ask women of Samaria to do such a thing. And the third plot twist comes when she starts to ask him about this living water and he tells her that the worship time is going to happen when it will never be in there or in Jerusalem. The Jewish people would have been flabbergasted. What do you mean not in Jerusalem? And then at the end, when she says, well, when the Messiah comes, everything will be all right. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah. 
It's plot twist after plot twist. But what I want us to understand is that this story written in the book of John has a plot twist for you and I that we must understand at the very beginning if we're going to understand the story and what it means for our story. What is natural when you read a story from the Bible is for you to identify with someone in the story, to think of yourself as someone in the story or compare yourself to someone in the story. And what we must realize in this passage of Scripture is that in this story, you and I are the Samaritan woman. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. (laughs) She was really bad. Right? Isn't that what you've heard always? That the Samaritan woman was really bad. Why? Because she had had, she was Liz Taylor, right? Right? She had had five husbands, and the man she was with now... (gasps) wasn't even her husband in that society that was bad and so the thing that we've heard from all this time is that listen this one was terrible and the amazing thing about this story is that jesus even though she's samaritan even though she's a woman even though she is an outcast still loves her yes and guess what so are you and so he does You see, without Jesus, every one of us is outside the family of God and needs God to seek us. It's easy to read this story and not put ourselves in the Samaritan woman's because we feel like we're a part of God's family. We feel like we're on Jesus' side. We feel like we're like the disciples. Jesus sent us away. He's having this personal conversation. But the reality of Scripture tells us that she was a complete outcast, that by every assessment she was the worst, a woman, an adulterer, an outcast, a Samaritan. And yet Scripture reminds us that without Jesus, that's exactly the same scenario we find ourselves in. For a Christian, there should never be an attitude of superiority when it comes to spirituality. Never. Because the first step to becoming a believer in Jesus Christ is to realize exactly how far away from Christ you were. And without him, you are. For all have sinned. Y'all know what the word all means, right? If we've learned anything in 10 years, that's what we've learned, right? The word all means all. Every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all, like sheep, have gone astray, each into his own way. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. And without Christ, we are the Samaritan woman. We are lost. We are an outcast from God's family. We are adulterers and thieves and idolaters. And yet God still pursues us. I think my favorite line in this entire passage is, He had to pass through Samaria. Because He didn't. There were paths, there were roads. And I am sure when He said to the disciples, We're going through Samaria, they all rolled their eyes. They all grumbled. They all complained. We're not supposed to go through there, Jesus. Why do we have to interact with those people, Jesus? It's going to mean we've got to stop and get water in there, Jesus. Why are we doing that? Most Jews did everything in their power to avoid it. 
But we're told in just the passage before this that Jesus did only what God told him to do. And God had told him to go through Samaria to Samaria because there was an appointment for him waiting at a well in Samaria with a woman who was an outcast, who was a loner, who was an adulterer, who was a sinner, who was a Samaritan. And God says, I want her in my family. And each and every one of us in this room, without Christ, finds ourselves in a place where we are an outcast, we are an outsider, we are without hope. And without God seeking us, nothing would ever change. Luke 19.10, when Jesus has interacted with another sinner, Zacchaeus, he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Not only do we see us as the woman in this story because we are outside of God's family, but also because we realize that only Jesus can satisfy our deepest need. She comes in the middle of the day. No respectable woman would have come in the middle of the day. But we remember we are not dealing with a respectable woman. She was an outcast and she comes in the middle of the day. The sun is bright. The sun is hot. For the last week, we spent our Days in the sunshine of California on the coast. The first day of sports camp, um, we got there and usually in the summer, especially in California, there's a, a, a haze or a fog that's kind of over the, the area for the first couple hours of the day. But the first day there was none. It was bright and shiny. And from the moment you stepped out, even though it was 74 degrees, that sun was bright on you. It felt it. It felt like a heater had been turned on your face. The midday sun in this part of the world of the Samaritan woman is the exact same. Directly overhead, beating down. And so people went early or late. Not in the middle of the day. She did because the only time she could get what she thought was her deepest and most important need Water. That's one of those things we don't understand because we got water at our faucets. We got water in the refrigerator. We spend $4 on a bottle of water. Some of you grew up when you got well water. Now that's getting smaller and smaller, right? But some of you remember that. I remember going to my great-grandparents' farm. They had well water. They had a well out on the back part. Brazil, Tennessee. Do y'all know there's a Brazil, Tennessee? You can't find it from here, but it's there, all right? That's right. It's a suburb of Gibson Wells, Tennessee, all right? Bill Edwards Lane, because Bill Edwards was the only one that lived on Bill Edwards Lane with his son, my uncle Jimmy, and wife Linda. Now, that's not Jimmy and Linda that live out at, out at the village out here, right? Sit over there on the left side. That's a different one. That's my uncle and aunt. But we'd go to Bill Edwards Lane to see Bill and Martha Edwards, also known as Daddy Bill and Mama Bus, and we'd get well water. I always thought it was cool to go out there and put the bucket down. I thought it was cool because at my house I had a faucet and it wouldn't work. When you had to go get it every day for work, it's not as cool as it used to be, right? This woman. See, if I told that illustration in the second service, there wouldn't be a single person there that would understand what I was talking about. Y'all realize that, right? That's why I need y'all. That's exactly right. And y'all get me off track. I don't even know where I am in my sermon anymore. She thinks that her deepest need is water. And Jesus says, no. He says to her, 
How are you going to get a bucket? You talk about living water. You don't got anything to get it with, Jesus. And he says, the water I'm talking about, you will never thirst again. Even in her question to him, when she tries to get him off track with the whole Samaritan Jerusalem discussion about where are we supposed to worship? What are we supposed to do? She reveals this inner thing in our soul that we were created to worship God and we don't even know how to do that. That the deepest desire of us is to worship, to celebrate, to glorify God. And we don't even know how to do that. And so he asks the question, where do I find it? How do I get it? What is the proper response? And she keeps coming back to the reality that she doesn't understand that only Jesus can satisfy our deepest need. In the country in which we live, it's the most blessed country in the history of the world. I am beyond grateful that I was born into this place. You realize you didn't choose to be born in America. Those of you that were born in America didn't choose that. It happened. There are a lot of things you can choose in your life. Where you're born is not one of them. And I am beyond grateful that I live here. But I also realize when I look around that we live in the most blessed country in the history of the world. And with that blessing, with that materialism, with that richness comes an understanding that we think we can somehow fill our lives with enough stuff to fill the deepest need of our soul. And no materialistic, no relationship, nothing outside of Jesus will ever fill the deepest need of our soul, that we are lost sinners in need of a Savior. We are the woman. Without Jesus, we are outside of God's family. We need Him to seek us. Without Jesus, we cannot satisfy the deepest need of our soul. And we are the woman because we are in the midst of a culture that holds the form of godliness without the power of God. One Christian philosopher says that in the nation of America, most Christians would fit within the category of cultural Christians. Their identification as a Christian is more cultural and social than religious. They may say they were born Christian. They're often born into ethnically conscious families that are baptized, married, and buried in a particular church, but have little or no interest or concern about its teachings or its meanings or its practices. A relationship with God through Christ may either be non-existence or on an as-needed basis. He's not saying that any of those are true Christianity. What he's saying is that there's a code of etiquette that's linked to their notion of Christianity. They serve on councils. They serve on boards. And in the same spirit as they would perform any other volunteer service to any other charitable organization, they're a part of a church. They have an emotional commitment to their denomination or to their local churches. And occasionally these emotions are of a love-hate. And among their primary concerns are the social standing of a denomination or a church in a particular zip code. When they do attend services, it's out of habit or obligation, not because they're actually seeking God. For them, being Christian is essentially a cultural identity and selectively a source of general human values. They may actually be quite secular or humanistic in their day-to-day thinking, but they claim to follow Christianity. What we see in this passage is a woman that comes from a culture that claimed to be followers of God, but they had no relationship with God. And it's not just in this culture being about Samaritan or Jewish, because we find from the Jewish leaders of that day, it was the same sort of reality. 
And one of the dangers I think we have in a country that has been blessed like it has been blessed is that sometimes we're able to see ourselves fall into a cultural Christianity where it is part of our background or our heritage, but it is not a personal relationship with Jesus. Just look at what we see in this passage, and, and the, I don't think these are going to be on the screen, but you, you can listen to these, you can write some of these down, because I'm afraid that they are indicative of much of what's happening even in our nation. People that are captured by cultural Christianity sacrifice encountering Christ to sustain cultural etiquette. She says, wait a minute, Jews had no dealings with us Samaritans. How is it that you, a Jew, can ask me? A woman of Samaria to give you a drink, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Christ is standing in front of her. And she refuses to have a relationship with him at the beginning because she's too concerned about the cultural etiquette of her day. She's too concerned about what other people will think about the standards that they have. She performs religious acts, see people around him do them out of custom or politeness. She abstains, or the people around her, she had necessarily, but the people around her abstain from certain activities because it's not what culturally they have done. As Christians, we have our do's and our don'ts, but they come out of custom, not conviction. You do watch this, you don't watch that. You do eat this, you don't eat that. You do drink this, you don't drink that. You do wear this, you don't wear that. But it's really more about cultural etiquette than it is about encountering Christ. Secondly, she values religious heritage over the reformation of heart. Verses 11 and 12, she starts talking about their father Jacob and what happened here. This was a sacred spot for her people. And she says that in this spot, we have lots of heritage. We have lots of good things. We have lots of things that are happening. But you're not even concerned in this passage about what's truly happening in her heart. She's not. More concerned about what was instead of what is or what can be. More concerned about what we have than what we can do for Christ. In about a month, I will have officially been your pastor for ten years. And it's been a great ten years. And I'm proud to be a part of the history and the heritage of First Baptist Goodlettsville. But can I just tell you something just honestly? If we do ministry in the next 10 years, like we've done in the past 10 years, we'll be on a downward trajectory in this church. If we base what we're doing now on what we've done then, it's not the way to reach people for Christ. And my concern is not budgets and buildings and numbers. My concern is the reality that they're going to be, as we talked about weeks ago, Seven to 800,000 non-believers moving into this area in the next 15 to 20 years. And if we are not a part of the solution to that, then what is the, to giving Christ to them, bringing Christ to them, sharing Christ with them, then what is the purpose for our being here? Which means we have to figure out what does it look like to encounter the next generation, to bring heart reformation, not just our cultural religious heritage. We live in a culture that values religious heritage over heart reformation. The church where we did um, vacation Bible school, Santa Monica Church partnered with another church in town. And we did the vacation Bible school in a church that used to be a thriving church. You know the key phrase there, right? Used to be. And you walk through their halls. Do you know what you see? This is an outsider walking through. You know what I saw? Monuments to the past. 
to big days they had in the past, things that they used to have in the past. And listen, Scripture is all about having monuments and altars and spiritual checkpoints, but they were always places that people were to be drawn towards God, not to be places just to remember what used to be. And I didn't know anything about the church, and I walked up to Zach and I said, my guess is this church isn't doing real well. He said, well, why do you think that? I mean, it's a nice building. It's right in the middle of Santa Monica. I said two reasons. I said, one, every picture on the wall is from at least 15 years ago. And any church that cares this much about its past is not thinking about its future. I got one there. That's good. Listen, I love First Baptist Gillespie. I love who we are. I love what we've done. And I am excited about the future, but it can't look like it used to look. Or we won't be effective in reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This woman valued her religious heritage over her heart reformation, even though she wasn't even very religious. She also wanted a genie for the flesh instead of salvation for the soul. Verse 15. I love this. It says, Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so I won't get thirsty. And if it stopped there, we might think she got it. She got it. She realizes he's talking about her soul. He's talking about what she really needs. But no, she says, and then I won't ever have to come to this well again. She thinks he's going to give her a magic vase that's going to refill water every time. And her needs will be taken care of. And that's it. Let me ask you, when you go into your Sunday school classes today, when you think about the prayer times that you've had in Sunday school, hopefully there are prayer times in your Sunday school class. When you think about the prayer times in your Sunday school class over the last month and a half, have they been more about physical concerns or spiritual needs? If you made out your, your prayer list right now, would it be more about physical needs or spiritual? Do we want salvation for our soul or do we want a genie that takes care of our flesh? Cultural Christianity has religious forms without repentance. She's talking about all this religious stuff, and then Jesus turns the question on, what about your husband? And she never says that she's done something wrong here. She just says it out there, that the words that she speaks does not match the actions of her life. And then we see she avoids personal responsibility to get into a dialogue about religious trivialities. And she recognizes Jesus as a prophet, but not as king. And we live in a culture of people who recognize Jesus as a prophet, but not as king. We live in a culture that has Christians that come to church every week. Cultural Christians that come to church every week that believe in Jesus as a prophet, but they have not turned their life over to him and let him take control. We are the woman. We're in desperate need of Christ. We can't do it on our own. Only he can fill our deepest needs. And we live in a culture that thinks they understand who God is and they have no clue. But then there's a twist in the story. Because she gets it. She's transformed and she begins evangelizing. Now I want you to think, if the story ended at verse 26, nobody would be shocked if this woman walked away and we never heard from her again. Because it doesn't look like she's getting it, right? She says, I mean, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us. And Jesus says, I'm the one. And then we get to verse 27, and it almost seems like the disciples interrupt this witnessing encounter. And you want to tell the disciples, just get away from it and let Jesus finish. 
The disciples arrived in verse 27, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet nobody said anything to him. They weren't that bold yet. The woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people. See how immediate this is? Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town, made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples urging him, Rabbi, eat something. He said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? What is he talking about? Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you see, even here he's teaching the disciples, our greatest need in life is not food. My food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So in other words, the deepest need, the deepest obligation of my life is not to fill my stomach, but to fulfill my goal. Don't say there are four more months until harvest and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay. Gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in the case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor. Others have labored and you have benefited. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. You know what I find interesting? Where are the disciples gone when they went away from Jesus? Where are they gone? To get food. Where do you think they had to go get food? Into town. Does it tell us that anybody was saved because they met the disciples in town to get food? That's the twist, right? Jesus' professional followers didn't do anything. And the woman who was an outcast goes in and immediately people start to come out. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves, and that no, this is really is the Savior of the world. She believes. She's transformed and begins evangelizing. We are the woman. Not only are we people in desperate need of Jesus, but the reality is once we come into a saving relationship with him, our next step must be to tell the story of what he's done for us. That's all evangelizing is. Sometimes we have programs and training sessions, and there are times we need to be able to answer questions, and we need to understand the basics. But the basic foundation of what evangelism is, it is telling people the gospel and our story. That Jesus died for you, and let me tell you what he's done for me. We're called to share our story. The whole point of this series has been that you and I have a story that needs to be told. That we're part of a mission of God in order to tell our story to those around us about how good he is and what he has done. And that true change is only going to happen when you and I begin to do that one-on-one on a daily basis. And so I want to end with six lessons that we've learned in this series that can be found in this passage. And the first one is this, that we must be intentional about getting where lost people are. We see that with Jesus, right? He must go through Samaria. He goes to the well and he meets with the woman. Every time I come back from Los Angeles... 
people make jokes. And we understand them. We're from the South. Los Angeles is a different place, right? But you know what Los Angeles really is full of? Lost people. Lots of them. Millions of them. You don't have to work to find a lost person in Los Angeles. They're everywhere you turn. Part of the reason that I think it's important for us as a church to consistently be involved in places like Los Angeles and to be in places that have asked us like Phoenix, to be in places like Lynch, to be in places where there are lots of lost people is because part of our mandate is to get where lost people are. But here's the reality. Seven out of ten people in the state of Tennessee are lost. So it's not like you got to go to Los Angeles, California to find them. My guess is if you walked across the street, you got a 7 out of 10 chance that they're there. You're like, well, not my street. I've known my neighbor for 50 years. Well, then find a new neighbor. I don't mean like kick them out. I mean find somebody that's moved in. And the likelihood if you've got somebody new moving into your neighborhood, there's about an 8 to 9 out of 10 chance they're an unbeliever. Find out who they are. Talk to them about what's happened in your life. Tell them what Jesus has done. Be intentional about getting where lost people are. Secondly, get outside your cultural and religious comfort zones. You know what an echo chamber is? It's where you sit and you talk and all you hear is what? Yourself. There's been numerous studies in recent weeks about the fact that social media and the internet has become echo chambers for those that are on it. That they only follow and listen to people that agree with them. And so they can't understand why no one agrees with them. And so you only watch news that you agree with. And you only look at feeds that you agree with. And the result is that we find ourselves clustered into more of a holy huddle than we've ever been. Because all we do is hear what we think. And in life, we have to get outside of our cultural and religious comfort zones. We traveled, Eli and I traveled Sunday on our own. We left here, uh, church, and the rest of the team was already there, and Eli and I were going, and so we left, and we traveled. Um, the first leg of our trip was from here to Las Vegas, and then from Las Vegas to Burbank. And you ain't got to look to find lost people in Vegas either. I don't know if you realize that or not. But there was part of me that when we got off the plane in Vegas... I don't know if anybody's ever flown into Vegas. I'm not asking you if you've ever been to Vegas. I'm not. If we want to have confessional afterwards, we can do that. But when you get off the plane, we had to move from one terminal to another. When you get off the plane, you know the first thing you see? Slot machines everywhere. Right? Now, I personally believe that gambling is something that God does not intend for us to do with our money because it's not good stewardship of our money. Right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm with my 14-year-old son. And part of me wants to go, ooh, ooh, got to protect him, right? First of all, the reality is he knows way more than I ever did at 14. Just the reality of life these days. And then part of me was like, no, this is a teachable moment, right? And if I just stay in my Nashville, Tennessee Christian bubble, and that's all he ever hears, he's going to find out. Amen? It's going to happen. And he can either find out in the comfort of me having a discussion with him, 
or in the comfort of his friends talking about it, you know who I'd rather him hear it from? Me. But if we never get outside of our cultural and religious comfort zones, we're never going to encounter people that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then we see here that we must take the initiative. Jesus is the one that asked for the water. He didn't wait for her to say something. He took the initiative. We've got to be intentional about getting where people are. We've got to get outside our cultural and religious comfort zones. We have to take the initiative. And then we must anticipate and accept some digression and diversion. It's not going to go like we think it's going to go. But when we get diverted, when we digress, when we chase rabbits. Aren't you glad you got a preacher that never chases rabbits? About Wells and Gibson, any of that, right? That's sarcasm for you if you didn't get it. You anticipate and accept some digression and diversion. But once we chase that rabbit, we always return to the gospel and your story. It's that basic. It's that simple. This is what God has done for me. God is in control. God rules. Sin messed that up. Your sin, my sin, all people's sin messed that up. But Jesus and his loving kindness came to earth, died for my sins, rose again from the grave. And if you will believe that and confess that with your mouth, then you will be saved. Here's how that happened for me. What about the way y'all treat? No, 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 no. Okay, we can talk about that for a second. But I'm coming back to the gospel. What about all the contradictions in the Bible? Well, first of all, there aren't any. We can talk through those if you want to. But I'm coming back to the gospel. Well, do you really believe God made the earth in six days a couple of thousand years ago? Well, we can talk about creation, but I'm coming back to the gospel. Well, do you really think it's going to get all weird at the end? What's your theory on end times? We can talk about that, but I'm coming back to the gospel. I've never seen in Scripture where they made them decide on an end times theology before they accepted Jesus. And if your most important thing is to get someone to a premillennial dispensational list of end times theology, then you're missing the boat. That emphasis, by the way, was thankful to the voice screaming all week, not from voice changes happening in my life. But we can talk about those things. We can chase those rabbits. We can have those discussions. But I'm going to return to two things. The gospel and what Jesus has done for me. And I want to tell you something, especially for those of you in this room. If you don't know those two things, you need to ask yourself whether you've been saved. If you don't know the basics of what the gospel is and you don't know how Jesus saved you, then you need to ask the question if you've done that. Or if you're locked in that cultural Christianity of something that has just happened because that's what your family did. And if you know them, then you ought to be able to tell them. Here's the last thing. And then I'm done, I promise. We trust the power of the gospel. This would not have been a red-hot prospect for Christianity when Jesus met her at the well. And do you see any amazing tactic Jesus used to convince her? He just simply told the story, and she believed. 
It's not your job to convert. It's your job to tell the story. Now, I heard you earlier. And when that song came on, I love to tell the story. When y'all started to sing that, y'all sang it. You know why? Because some of you in this room, you love, I love to tell the story. I like it too. It's one of those songs that takes me back to First Baptist Church of Dyersburg, Tennessee. But for me, the question I have to ask myself is, is that song something that I just like because of the nostalgic appeal to it? Or is it something I'm practicing on a regular basis? Can you really sing, I love to tell the story of Jesus, his love for me, if you haven't told anybody outside the faith the story in the last month? Maybe you ought to sing, I used to tell the story. Or I wish I'd tell the story. But you can't say I love to tell the story if you hadn't told the story. Now, I'm not going to get into the fact that a lot of times we sing things that aren't quite true in our worship. Because I'm thankful for a God that is merciful and kind. But when's the last time you told the story? This woman went as fast as she could. When's the last time you told the story? Now here's the thing I want to tell you. In this story, we are the woman. And you're either in one or two places as the woman. You're either in the place before she accepted that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, you are in your sin and you have no hope, or you are on the other side of that in a place where you ought to be telling his story on a regular basis. So which place is it? If you're here today and you say, I'm just here because it's close to 4th of July, we do this on family day, or I came with mom, or dad said something to me about it, or I just walked in, I don't really know where I am when it comes to following Jesus, can I tell you something? That without Christ, there is no hope. But in Christ, it is the most amazing thing imaginable. Not every problem you have in this life is going to be solved immediately, but in eternity you will live with God forever in a perfect environment prepared for you. And you will have hope and joy in this life that you can't even imagine. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, you've never trusted him as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. In just a moment, I'm going to stand down front. We're going to sing a hymn together. We're going to sing together. And I'm going to ask you, if that's you and you're ready to make a commitment, you're ready to talk to me about what it means to follow Jesus, I'm going to ask you to come and to stand here with me and talk to me about that. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you just haven't told the story. Maybe you need to come today and just pray that God will begin to lift people into your lives. Bring people into your lives that will need to hear the story. And that you'll be faithful to tell it. Let's pray together.